you both have nominated for Grammy, Latin Grammy both, and, and Carlos, you won five awards, correct? Six, six. six, six Grammys, yes. Uh, two in composition, two in tango, and one uh, with uh, an album that I did uh, duets with uh, a fabulous jazz bass player, Eddie Gomez. Yes. Allison, you you are also nominated. Yeah, I've been nominated twice for Grammys and three for Latins. And uh, my name is on one of his wins. Carlos won for composition. It was a piece that I recorded, but I'm not the winner uh, because the piece won, not the recording itself. In my book, you are. Aww. You know people call a duo like you power couple, right? We we have been referred to that way, which we find really fascinating because we really just do what we do. And the good thing is that I must say, I mean, she's she's the pianist. She's the concert pianist. I am a composer. So we share things, but we don't get to the point of competing. We, it's not that we compensate each other. We compliment. We compliment. That's the word you're looking for. You know. We've been extraordinarily fortunate that way. We're very, very respectful of each other's work, very separately, as well as everything that we've done together. Hello, piano enthusiasts. Welcome to the Piano Pod with me, Yukimi Song. Today, we're diving deeper into the second installment of this season's eighth episode with extraordinary artists Carlos Franzetti and Alison Burster Franzetti, an exceptional duo with multiple Grammy and Latin Grammy awards, celebrated as the power couple of classical music. In case you missed our captivating part one conversation, exploring their fascinating journey to becoming Grammy and Latin Grammy winning artists, don't worry. You can catch up on all the excitement on your favorite podcast platform right now. As we wrap up 2023, it's been an incredible year connecting with you and remarkable guests through this magical podcast medium. My heartfelt gratitude goes out to each of you for tuning in throughout the year and since the Piano Pods launch in the summer of 2020. Your support has fueled my passion for sharing the piano world with you. Over the past four years, We've strived to make classical music resonate in fresh ways with today's audience. To keep these episodes coming, your support is vital. Every contribution helps cover essential podcast expenses. So click the PayPal link in the show notes or visit thepianopod.com to donate. As a token of gratitude, I'll personally mail you the Pianopod's logo sticker. So stay tuned for the year 2024. Our exciting lineup of guests is ready to share thoughts, ideas, and expertise. I'm thrilled to bring you more inspiring conversations, captivating performances, and behind the scenes insights into the world of classical music. A warm welcome to all our new listeners. This podcast is your all access pass to the enchanting world of piano. In each episode of the Piano Pod, we interview a guest speaker pioneering new grounds in the industry. Please take a moment to rate and review the show on your favorite podcasting platform. It truly helps others discover our show. So, dear friends, here is part two of the Piano Pod season four, episode eight. Featuring Carlos Franzetti and Alison Brewster Franzetti. Please enjoy the show. So, you both are the good influence and good impact for one another. That's that's oh, I, oh, I, oh absolutely. Yeah. I, I, we, that's for sure. We really do bring out the best in each other constantly. Mm. And it's really great to have that kind of support. This weekend, I will be playing some of Carlos's music out at Penn State University with Bart Feller. 
uh, the flutist friend, the principal flute of New Jersey Symphony. Um, we have a concert at Penn State University on Sunday. And then Laurel Zucker, the flutist, Carlos wrote sonata for her that we are going to be recording next summer and a couple of other pieces that he wrote mm-hmm. for her that we were also recording next summer. And um, amongst other people, you know, a whole bunch of your music's getting done in various places right now. Well, you have so many more fun projects and concerts and hopefully more recordings to come. Hopefully. I mean, the world of, of recording is kind of convoluted. And uh, the streaming, uh, you know, all this is a, is a result of COVID. Because when COVID started, like people wouldn't leave their homes. And uh, so they had to entertain themselves with uh, streaming of movies and music and things like that, which the, that market, all those platforms grew tremendously. Whatever. People don't own CD players they anymore. Don't, they don't, yeah. they don't so like I'm, in I'm your amazed. car, you don't have a CD right. player anymore. No. So I don't know really what, what the future will be for recordings unless people decided in films, platforms that films that they produce, they're not available in theaters, but they're available in, in platforms. So I don't know whether it's going to be the case with music too. Uh, people with, well, whatever, somebody like Madonna or Lady Gaga, mm-hmm. new recording available on, on so-and-so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sound platforms. Mm-hmm. So, it might be the future because I don't, you know. I don't, well, it's, it's, it's the way it is, you know. I mean, and, and the thing with streaming, of course, for most of us mere mortals, you don't make any money from it. So if you're Taylor Swift, you do, who, of course, set yet another record on Spotify yesterday, all the power to her. I mean, she's brilliant. Yeah, but even then she had to fight for it because she had to remaster her original because she wasn't yeah, making much money. Part. Right, right. So it's a really tricky business here. Then, Carlos, you mentioned a little bit about COVID. So for the last three years, affected us so in so many, so many ways, yeah. like, you know, the yeah. way we communicate is now different tremendously. As you mentioned, the way we listen, the way we just to enjoy art, enjoy a little film is not the same as before. So tell me. No, no. attention spans when, are not the well, same either. When, at all. I, I, I live here. I mean, I work here. And, and so COVID didn't affect me in that sense. I was writing music and it was the same thing. I would go out and do some groceries with a mask. But then eventually I, I got COVID and Allison got COVID. And, um, it, Except I barely noticed that I had it, honestly. Yeah, I, mean, I, I, I was so not sick. I sailed through that without any, I mean, my, I, I did some blood work and my doctor told me, by the way, you have antibodies, you develop antibodies, you have COVID. But later on, I had this episode that I thought that I had, um, you know, a, a brain, a, a HCV, a, 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 and, and it was... Subdural hematoma. Uh, hematoma. I had to go. I had surgeries. I had three surgeries because it would, you know, I mean, which is bleeding on the dura to the brain and which compresses the brain and kind of. So, and the doctor said, I said, well, you know, what happened? I didn't hit my head or anything like that. He said, this is a COVID result. <gasps> oh, my God. And, well, uh, I had brought that up actually to the surgeon at one right. point um, when he was about, when he was having. Uh, procedure number two, which is the craniotomy. And I said, you know, Carlos has antibodies in his system. And I said, there is this research talking about all the res- the things that can happen to well, the vascular system. at the beginning, they thought COVID only affects your lungs and this and that's it. 
I mean, now they know that it affects your heart, your kidneys, and you know your brain. It can brain. affect all sorts of things. So uh, it it manifests in different ways, and and this was what hit me, and it was you know kind of dramatic for to have brain surgeries. I have kind of. <laughs> titanium it was, plate. It was very dramatic. And um, oh my but, goodness, but I survived. That. And he's fine. I yeah, mean, fine. he's really Wonderful. fine. I, I I couldn't even tell like you have such a huge. Yeah, well, deal. I have a lot. Of <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, not just you a would, look, yeah. but yeah, you you wouldn't tell. I didn't. No. I, I, you know, the funny. Well, the funny thing is that later on, I was looking at the subdural hematomas and this and rate of survival, and I said, well, twenty percent of the people survive. I said, oh my goodness! I said, Am I reading this right? Oh, the other, I'm, I'm, you know. Then I said, well, you know, I am. Right. One of the lucky wow. ones. Yeah. But then yeah. you're it's still you're still writing music. You're still Oh yes, yes. And I know? recorded the album right after oh well, like a year six later. Six it's months. About, I started about a year. I, I wanted to do an album, a jazz album, which is the last thing I did for Sunnyside Records. And it's called In the Wee Small Hours of the Morning. It, which is a beautiful song. And I I tried to get songs from the the era of the Second World War, when, like, we'll meet again, uh, memories of you, things that call about distance and longing and loss. And because I think that we went to a period like that. I mean, we lost a lot of very so good many friends. friends. And, <gasps> and, uh, and so did everybody. I mean, so it, and it was a way of, you know, when during the, the war, the GIs would go without, you know, knowing what would happen to them and their families and their loved ones. And all these songs, uh, Time Remembered and um, How Deep is the Ocean, all, all those songs reverberated 70 years after that. It made so much sense to record them. So I, I went and recorded this album. In uh, May of uh, 2021. 2021. Oh, you're, what's, the, what's the title of the uh, record? In the wee small hours, in the wee small hours, I, you know, I can we can make it send it to you. And that's with um, David Pink, David Pink, Pink and, and Billy, Billy Drummond on yeah, drums. It's oh, a wow. real dream trio. Wonderful, it's a wonderful, beautiful, beautiful trio. Oh my goodness, that's I, I think I it's on Spotify as well, right? It's on Sunny Side. Sunny Side Records. Sunny Side Records. Okay. I, I, I call this uh, the owner and the producer, Francois Salakane. And you're a hero. You're putting out CDs at this time. I mean, you, you know, you're either a hero or a martyr. But, you know, it's amazing. I congratulate you. And, and you know, he, he keeps doing it. It's fantastic. Yep. So there, yeah. So in terms of the industry, there are certain labels who are still putting out a lot of stuff like Parma is doing and some others that are actually putting out some really wonderful product. And so we're very fortunate. Of course, Legacy, we put it out ourselves right. on our label because we really felt that we could best represent what that record was and what it is, what it stands for. But we've been really more fortunate than many people when it comes to recording who we've gotten to work with. I have several upcoming projects that are going to have various homes that I'll be collaborating with a wide range of people right now. And again, I'm very fortunate to be able to say that, that um, I keep having these opportunities. I also just finished doing Jurassic Park 
with New Jersey Symphony. Oh my goodness. And yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, I was behind the screen, so I couldn't see it. But audience, those things are fun to do, I have to say. Um, to, when you get to play live to film like that, that your audiences have such a great time. And the scores are difficult. Uh, the, the they are, they're hard. Are difficult. They're hard. Yeah. On this particular one, I was doing the synth parts. So not only was I having to change patches constantly, which I was actually doing with my foot, I had to keep adjusting the volume depending on which patch I was on because they were very unevenly matched. So it's like if I had a Celeste patch to play and I had a lot of them, I had to put the volume all the way up. But the second I would have to play something else, I'd have to bring it back. And I was constantly guessing, depending on what venue we were in, was my volume actually correct? There was no way for me to know. And so I just had to go with what I heard and trust the sound guys in the house to handle all the rest of it. So it was constantly adjusting here, playing here, adjusting here, adjusting with It's kind of how it goes when you do those. But it seems like you both have such a varied career. Like, you know, you're not just one thing, right? Like, Alison, you have this experience with the film and as well. And then also, Carlos, you wrote for commercials, but also you are Latin Grammy, Grammy Award winner and write jazz, this and that. And so what? And your film, too. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So is that the maybe secret to the longevity of your career sort of like a diversifying your career you know what i mean not just to focus on one thing well there is eclecticism in a sense but it's also that i you know I, being a commercial professional musician i had to accept to do as being an arranger is an extension of being a composer you know you learn to orchestrate and to arrange other people's music and i was called to do as i said from the times of Mexico doing mariachi music to Latin, to rock, to some movies. And then later in New York, the salsa phenomenon of the 70s and then R&B and um, jazz and, and, and other types of music, I, I think, and tango. I don't think that I have skipped any genre of music. I mean, I, I've done mostly, you know, they call me and said, we need you to do this arrangement of uh, Spanish songs. Uh, but we need to, you know, you to adapt this for a wind quintet or we need. So you do all kinds of different things. I would say that the only thing I don't do is heavy rock because there's no, you know, there's no, no place for me to, you know, to write right. in, in on a techno pop or things like that. But, you know, other than that, I've done everything. Yeah. I think the other thing, and I know you were going to bring this up, is that you have to be willing to adjust to the times. And the world that we originally were brought up in has nothing to do with the world we're in. It really has changed that radically in so many ways. You know, just the fact that we're having this conversation a few years ago, we wouldn't have done it. No. Right? We didn't have that proliferation. So like one of the things that I got involved with during COVID was I contacted my best friend of the past 40 years, who's a techie amongst other things and a producer. And when I saw that orchestras were starting to shut down, I realized that this was a long haul situation. It was not going to be for a couple of weeks. I knew it immediately. I contacted my best friend and said, there's got to be a way for orchestras to be able to 
continue. And we had actually, he with his tech guys and me filling him in on orchestral leads and stuff like that, we had devised a system where orchestras could be in the same building at the time, right? But in different parts of the building, right? And following all the protocols, because we knew what all the protocols were from the various unions, setting up the cameras, the microphones, the, the kind of high-speed access you needed, etc. being able to have a conductor yet in another location in the building, and then being able to have orchestras actually play together. And it turned dealing out, with latency, too. And right? dealing with latency, too. Now, it turned out we were way ahead of our time. Various orchestras took a really good look at it and were really considering it, and then they started looking at the possible price tag and going, can't do it. But what that led us to was the Orchestra of the Americas and the Orchestra Academy, and we became part of their advisory board. And what the Academy is doing is really fascinating because they are hybrid at this point, but during COVID, everything was online. So they were doing all of these incredible workshops from the orchestral level of various repertoire, working with various conductors, uh, renowned conductors from around the world, and then having modules for their respective in instruments with these, again, world-renowned musicians taking them through. Not only were they working on repertoire things, but they're working on strategies for the 21st century, how to market yourself, how to work with entrepreneurial things, you name it, they're touring it. And they are also developing actual degrees in it. Wow. So they have these fellows that work with them in these various ways, including that they have this whole piano contingent with um, Gabriela Montero, which is, she's incredible. I mean, what she's doing is incredible. And so you have all these cohorts from around the world who are participating in this. And so every three months, we at the advisory board, we meet, we see what they're doing, what they're developing, and give feedback on it. My area has been working with them on syllabi and stuff like that and looking at what they're actually offering. How are they communicating it? Is this really, you know, what they're looking to do is really quite groundbreaking in so many ways and very exciting. And so being part of something like that is really fascinating. Having come from the very academic musical world that they're looking to compete with at this point, but because their point of view is constantly looking at the future and what needs to happen to keep music viable, not just now, but for the future. Yes. And reaching also, in many cases, some very underserved communities around the world, mm -hmm. right? So it's really, it's, it's quite fascinating to see what people are doing, why they're doing it and the need for it. And so I really do believe that schools like Berkeley have been on top of this stuff for years in terms of where the business is going and why the business is going a certain way. And the kinds of degrees that they offer are not just necessarily performing or teaching degrees. They have a whole system of careers related to music. 
that you could be part of and train for? And why do you do it? That take into account all these various developments that have happened. And this is where a lot of the more traditional music conservatories or universities don't necessarily do this and they need to be doing it. Wow. So this is a, uh, yeah. I have a little bit of an opinion about it, you think? Oh, (laughs) yeah. But it's incredible that you do have this. But what did you notice? Did you notice that from your students, observing from your students or from your audience, that something is missing and then needs to take an action right now? Oh, it was all of the above. It's It's been all of it. And that, you know, and looking sometimes at who's attending concerts and who are we reaching or who are we really missing? What's happened to music education? Now, in New Jersey, we're more fortunate than a lot of places in terms of the wealth of opportunities that are available here for kids to be able to study, to play with different kinds of orchestras or singing choirs or whatever it is. We have a lot of it, you know. Uh, New York City is not that kind of fortunate, not like we are. But even so, still adapting for what this musical world is and is going to be does take a lot of foresight. On the other hand, If you're a performer, you still have to be able to perform. So a lot of the stuff that you still have to do is still, that didn't change Mm -hmm. in terms of the excellence that you have to have in terms of how you go about playing your instrument or singing or composing or arranging. That's all still the same. You've still got to have those skill sets, but what you do with them is what has changed so completely in so many ways. So that the opportunities like Carlos was in Jingles for so many years, well, that world doesn't exist Mm. now. Of course. So what do you do? And so so that's where he's had all these other opportunities and people who have approached him over the years to do this, to do this, to do this, to do this. And some of that has been, frankly, by reputation, you know, that people know our work. And so... We are fortunate in that sense that people come to us constantly to do this thing or do this Mm -hmm. thing or do this thing. But, you know, if you're really young and starting out, your socials have got to be really good, whether you want them or not. And yes, it's oversaturated. And yes, people are going to put what they want you to see. That's true. Okay, fair enough. But whether we like it or not, that is reality. People are going to look at that often before they're ever going to look at your website. Constantly have your product up on YouTube or, you know, or wherever it is and that you keep having and to self-promote. You know, in the end, we want to grab audience attention and invite them over to the actual concert hall and listen Mm -hmm. to the real classical music or real jazz band, whatever that is, a great music, yeah. right? But to do that, these days, especially these days, it takes few extra steps for for us to really reach out. Uh, and I think that the, it will be back to that. I mean, I think that people are getting cabin fever and, uh, you know, like too much of internet, too much of this, of concerts. And I even played some, some concerts here for, you know, on, on Zoom through Zoom and, and so did Alice and I think, but I think it's, you know, it had to do with like getting together with other people, going to a concert, 
going to a jazz club or whatever is something that we need to, you know, it's it, it, as gregarious as we are, we, you know, we have to be with other people. We can't be like only doing it, uh, you know, selectively and at home. You know, the internet is a fantastic medium. It's wonderful. But then, you know, there are certain things that you appreciate more being live there, like a concert, rather than watching a, a, a video of a concert. I mean, Carlos was telling me we, we had done uh, The Empire Strikes Back last spring. My. And our daughter was here from Las Vegas, and I was able to get them comps to go. Uh, I was playing piano on that one. And they said it was an extraordinary experience to the, be the in that audience. Because it was simultaneously synchronized, simultaneously the movie without the soundtrack, just the dialogue, and the soundtrack was coming from the podium, from the from us, from the from the concert hall, and they were and the place was packed. And it was amazing. I mean, it was packed. It was incredible. I mean, I I've never been to one of those concerts. You know, when they do a movie and and you know they play the score synchronized or you know the conductor to the movie. The conductor, Konstantin Kitsopoulos, did a marvelous work. And so did the whole orchestra because you have two hours of music without stopping, mm. you know, demanding music. But wasn't uh, it the, like the, like this, like the Charlie Chaplin's time, there is was an actual orchestra, you know? <laughs> right. Exactly. To the, to the orchestra, the conductor knows the timing. It doesn't have a click track or anything like that. I mean, he's doing it to movie. Uh, the way they did it in Hollywood a long time ago, you know, the Elmer Bernsteins and the, you know, the, uh, you know, Hermans, and, and he did a fantastic job. And, and so did all the musicians. The orchestra sounded yeah. fabulous. And some of the other ones, and I, and I have to say, I'm really supportive of this, is the video game concerts mm. uh, with orchestra. I've done a bunch of those. Really? And I have to tell you, first of all, your audiences know the music, even if we don't play the games and we don't know it. They do. <laughs> and so they're, you know, and they're always packed mm. and they're always excited to be there. And I have to say that so much of that music is great. It's great. And it's really exciting to play it. And that's the truth. And it brings and people to the, the it you know, brings people to the, to the concert halls. And so I say, I think that doing these kinds of events to bring people to the concert halls is great. And also what I have seen people, I've seen people come back to hear more classical kind right. of concerts as a result of having this live experience and saying, exactly. this is great. Some, so that's why really seriously, I'm all for it. Thank you for saying that. I mean, I didn't have to even guide you for this conversation. You said, said oh, it all. Yeah. Thank you. Beautiful. Oh, we always have plenty to say. Beth I never met you. <laughs> In the end, why do you think classical music matter? Why music education matters? I feel that we live thanks to music. I mean, we are subject to music from the uh, the little, uh, you know, the little songs and, uh, you know, the, the kinder, the, the, the rhymes, the, you know, the, the, the wedding marches, the, you know, up to the end with the funeral march. I mean, so we are there with music all our lives. But classical music matters because it's, it's something that narrates a time, narrates a state of mind of what, what was Baroque, what was Rococo, what was classical, what was... Uh, 
Impressionism, what was the jazz age, the 20s, and what is today the music. I mean, it, 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 you know, you couldn't have minimalistic music in 1900. You have to have had it later on. And the same thing is you can't have impressionistic music at the times of Bach. It, it happened because it was a whole movement of, of painting, of literature, of music. So it, it, it's a time. And that's what culture does. Culture is history, and so is music. Music is is our history. And right, exactly. I used to teach general ed music at Kane. It was one of the many areas that I taught. And kids would have to take this class, right? They had to take a GE, and they would take music. So, And they would come in, convinced they didn't know anything. They're going to hate it. Uh, they'd be terrified. So I would start with pieces that I knew they'd already know, right? So you start playing the opening of Beethoven Fifth. And at the time, it was uh, rodeo um, was being used, beef, it's what's for dinner, right. uh, stuff like that. And uh, like Claire de Lune and other things. And I would start with pieces like this and go, okay, how many of you recognize this piece, even if you don't know what it's called? And all the hands would go up, right? And I picked a whole bunch of these and I said, so you already know something about classical music. So you're still scared of this class. And people would chill out immediately with that because they'd realize they had been exposed to this their whole lives, though they didn't necessarily know what it was exactly they were being exposed to. So that was thing one that I would do. The other thing, and Carlos was, I agree. What I would say is at a time when a piece of music is being composed and performed, Here's what's going on at that time. So here's a question I want you to think about. Do you think that music is a reflection of some of those things or is it telling you what's coming or is it maybe some of both? And so we would cover various periods of music that way and genres of music that way. And I'd always remind people at the time that this was being composed. This was new. So this didn't exist before. Put yourself in that kind of frame of mind as you listen to it. By the time we got to, you know, around 1920-something, I said, you have several different kinds of musical events happening. Here's why this is all happening. And at the same time that you have classical music happening, you already have jazz developing. You've already had ragtime developing. You've had the cakewalk. You've had all these different things that are happening, right? Uh, a couple of years ago, I, I played in, in Italy, a jazz concert, and Alison came with me, and I talked to the talked to Alison before and then to the organizers of the concert, that Alison was presenting before my, my jazz concert with a trio, kind of a lecture of the influence of blues in classical music, and not only in, you know, the obvious of George Gershwin, but also on Ravel, Piano Concerto, and G., and the violin sonata. And the violin sonata, and then on, on Stravinsky, and so many. And, and she would play the effect, and, you know, after playing the blue notes, showing what uh, Ravel did with, uh, you know, the piano concerto in G, and, and then uh, with Mio and uh, other composers that you chose. Right. And it was very interesting because we always see the, the opposite, you know, the influence of, jazz, of, of classical music in jazz. You know, people like Bill Evans and so many others who benefit from Debussy and Ravel. 
but not the other way around. And um, it, it was a, then I expected she did it in Italian. Very interesting. She did it in Italian. Boy, did I have to work at that because I don't speak Italian. Yeah. Oh my so goodness. I had to work. She wrote everything. I wrote everything, and it was evidently people understood me quite well. And when I would make mistakes, I'd start to laugh. And so would everyone else, because we all knew I'd messed up, and I'd make fun of myself, and it was fine. I then expanded it to the influence of jazz and blues and classical music, and then incorporated all sorts of different composers, whether they're male, female, or whatever their orientation, um, from different parts of the world and how that really expanded. So one of the composers that I found really interesting was Dana Suisse. Now, Dana Suisse um, died in the 80s, I believe. And she was, during her lifetime, she was referred to as the female Gershwin. She was a composer. She was a pianist. She was a singer. She wrote all kinds of wonderful music that disappeared for a while. But quite a few pianists are doing uh, her stuff, including Sarah Davis Buchner and Lisa Moore. So I'm hardly the only one that's doing it. One perfect example of influence of jazz in musicians and classical composers is Kapustin, when you recorded, obviously beautifully written, but totally thinking toward jazz. And, and, all, and his stuff is completely written out. Oh, yes. It's yeah. all, yeah, it may sound like you're improvising. But it sounds which like I a Chick Corea uh, improvisation. Yeah. But, but it's all written everything and so yeah that was a perfect example of and uh one of the composers that i had included in the original lecture was uh several different examples of the work that he did so this is also where the fact that i also live with carlos who's a, a phenomenal jazz pianist has been really helpful to me when i do some of these cross-genre type of presentations that i do we have so much to talk about, but sadly, it's time for us to uh, go. But before yeah. we go, um, just quickly, what's the next phase for you? The symphony, I'm in the process of orchestrating certain parts, but I mean, it's almost done. After that, we go on a cruise next week. We're going to go to uh, from Los Angeles to uh, the Mexican Riviera. Los Cabos and Los Cabos and all that. I mean, just... We love to sail, and this time we're doing it with our daughter. Oh, great. Then I'm coming back to this uh, other project, the, the Minotaur mm -hmm. Suite, orchestrate that. As far as other things, as I said, yes, we have some concerts together, the February, the opera in San Francisco, which I don't know if I'm going to go. But um, there are several things there, and uh, as if the year begins, the 24 will begin, there are always going to be new uh New challengers, right? Yep. And and you... I have a lot of recording projects. Oh my god! Um, so uh, one with Maureen Hurd Huss, who is the associate director of music at Rutgers, and she's doing a project of Irish music. Then Laurel Zucker, we're going to be recording Carlos's music. There's another flutist, Norley Garcia, that we're doing a French project, and that's going to be in Florida, I think in early January. There's a violist, uh, Brett Dubner, that I'm going to be recording with again. I don't have dates on that yet, but this, I know we're doing this that. This thing in San Antonio then, might happen. Right, yeah. San Antonio, that uh, we're waiting to hear on some stuff in San Antonio. Um, boy, and I think I've left some out. 
then of course the concert with uh, Carlos's suite in right. February, and um, I will be doing Nutcracker. Wow! In this year. So I am the Sugar Plum Fairy every year, which I enjoy doing. I really do. I I really enjoy Tonight playing piece. that piece every year. I do. I look forward to Can't it. Go wrong with um, and a whole bunch of other concerts that will be coming. Plus, I have a huge studio that I teach. So I'm at Blair Academy. I also have private students. So I have something like 28 students. I don't see them all in a given week, but you know what that's like. You teach. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> so you know what that is. And uh, so when I do see everyone in a week, it's 28 lessons. But mm-hmm. um, but it varies from the week depending on who is available when. I mean, I have certain students that I teach every week, of course. So that's probably about 20 of them that oh, I wow. teach every week. That's a lot of students, and you're. It's a lot, but mm-hmm. I enjoy. It. It's been a wonderful conversation, Carlos and Allison, both of you. So, to for my audience, if you want to find out more about Carlos, you can go to his website at carlosfrancetti.com, and if you want to find more about Allison, you can go to allisonbrewsterfrancetti.com, and correct. both of you are on Facebook, Instagram, all that good stuff. Correct. We're all there. Mm-hmm. Our stuff's on Spotify, Apple Music, and there's Audio, some video YouTube. and YouTube. Yeah. You, we're on. We're. You, you want to find us? We're findable. Great. That's so fantastic. So this has been a great conversation. Before I let you go, we have one more thing to do. It's the rapid fire questions, where oh, I yeah. get to ask silly questions, but actually. These questions are tricky, so be aware. So you don't okay. have to explain anything. I will just ask you something. Just answer them with the shortest responses as possible. Okay? Okay. Yeah. Uh, who who first? Um, oh. You know, you can just both answer them simultaneously. It, it's okay. just, let, let's improvise. <laughs> it's a, it, this is a, where improvisational skill is required. And I'm sure you okay. can answer. Okay, we'll find out. So okay. first one, what is your comfort food? Strawberries. I'm so surprised I said that. (laughs) How do you like your coffee? Uh, Black. With milk. Espresso. Espresso with milk. Great. Cats or dogs? Dog. What skill have you always wanted to learn but haven't had the chance to? Tennis. Uh, Basketball, I guess. Okay. What is your word or words to live by? Love. Work. (laughs) (laughs) what is the most important quality you look for in other people fidelity honesty name three people who inspire you living or dead stravinsky ravel belevens my husband ravel and bach great name one piece in your current playlist matis or mother in the mid Icarus from Minotaur and the Labyrinth. The last question. Fill in the blank. Music is blank. Life. Food for the soul. Beautiful. That's it. Congratulations. You've passed. So, Thank you. <laughs> so this concludes this episode of, of the Piano Pod. Thank you, Allison and Carlos, for joining my show today and sharing your beautiful stories and insights and expertise. You can learn more about Allison and her amazing work through her website and also Carlos 
through his website, and all the links are listed in the show notes. Thank you to my wonderful audience and fans for tuning in today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review it on your favorite podcasting platform, and be sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel if you're watching this episode from YouTube. Follow the Piano Pod on social media to get the latest piano news via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Hope you all have a safe and happy holidays with your loved ones wherever you are tuning from. I will see you in the year 2024 for the next episode of the Piano Pod. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Happy holidays. Thank you, Carlos and Allison. Thank you. Thank you.